0: Hello and welcome to the Mania Podcast. They say the road to hell is paved with good intentions. For many of us, hell is not a literal place. Detached from religious dogmatism, it becomes a powerful metaphor for a state of suffering or indeed a passage in our lives which feels surrounded by immense difficulty. And yet the very nature of living is challenge. In achieving one milestone, the euphoria quickly fades merely replaced by craving for higher accomplishment. By solving one problem, like clockwork, another one appears. Even when we maintain a modicum of contentment, the human condition has a neat trick of conjuring worries from mere thoughts, powerful enough to spiral into true catastrophe. As individuals, we often strive to be better on a daily basis. We try to divorce ourselves from bad habits, we refine our judgment our ways of thinking, in the hopes of carving out a better person who more gracefully overcomes life's unending trials. The penultimate goal being, I believe, to mitigate suffering as much as possible and to fill as many moments with a sense of equanimity. But the problem often lays in the method, not the motivation. All these desires, these imaginings of a brighter future, of a more well rounded individual, are noble. But sometimes the way in which we go about chasing them results in the feeling of taking two steps back and only one forwards. Put simply, sometimes the pressure we place on ourselves is too great, and trying so fervently to find heaven, we may unwittingly stumble and fall headlong into hell. My name is Harlequin Grimm, and you are listening to the stories of monsters whose voices are lost in history. Maria Crucifissa della Conscia was born as Isabella Tomasi in Italy, 1645. An ancestor of Giuseppe Tomasi, a famous writer, she possessed a keen mind and all the fixings of a linguistic master. She arrived at the island of Sicily at the young age of 15. Already she had decided to devote her life to God, and so entered the Benedictine convent, baptized soon after. With an amiable personality, she got on well enough with the other nuns, becoming an active participant in all the daily rituals of monastic life. The path of a Catholic nun is not without its challenges. After all, such rigorous religious devotion means pursuing both purity and action, but more importantly, purity of the mind. But why, you might ask, could thought ever be more important than action? And that is precisely for the same reason that an artist needs substance just as much as technical ability. For the same reason that, in moments of disaster, what separates the level-headed from the panicked is simply the ability to manage one's thoughts. But the inverse is also true. For every unpure thought, Sister Maria chastised herself. For every wayward daydream, for every lustful urge, she felt, a dagger of guilt, carving out a deeply self-loathing mindset, a psychological torture chamber where she was both captor and victim. After only a few years as a nun, Sister Maria began experiencing fainting bouts. She was known to break out screaming at random intervals, the stress of her pursuit of virtue resulting in mental breakdowns, where the rage she felt inside herself would be projected upon others. The head of the convent, Abbess Agatha, would frequently find her after these fainting bouts, disheveled and missing some of her garments. As to where Sister Maria was found, well, it would be in all the unlikeliest of places, in her own cell, in the chapel, in the courtyard beside the living quarters. Most often, she was found in the garden, with soil on her knees and dirt upon her face. At first, Abbess Agatha had stern words for the sister, but it quickly became apparent That Maria's explosive anger and fainting were a condition perhaps beyond her control. More disconcerting still was the fact that Sister Maria had no recollection of where the time had gone after losing consciousness, how she'd ended up where she did, or indeed the poisonous things she screamed beforehand. It was the summer of August, sixteen seventy six. The hot, dry air was finishing off the wilt of the carnations blooming in the garden. In the mornings, gentle winds carried their rosy aroma, their petals tremulous amongst the other flowers shivering in the garden. Carnations, in all their morbid beauty, held the colour of cadavers whose edges are steeped in scarlet, that bright contrast, like the very thin line between temptation and sin. One afternoon, the church's nuns began to murmur amongst themselves after choir, realising that both the Sister Maria and Sister Greta hadn't been in attendance. Abbess Agatha, with stern lines of thought wrought on her face, didn't think much of Maria's absence. In all likelihood, it would be due to her condition. But what of the other nun? Greta, a woman nearly ten years older than Maria in her early twenties, was loath to miss out on her duties. Such behavior was highly atypical. The strings of some greater disturbance were being plucked. Gathering up the robes of her habit, Agatha made for the convent gardens, while the other nuns slowly funneled out of the church. It was nearly dusk, and the great steeple's bell was tolling, a trembling din that pursued Agatha as she unlatched the rusted iron gate into the gardens. And there was Maria, just then coming to with sleepy eyes the dark, curling rivulets of her raven-black hair falling about her naked chest. Her tunic had been pushed down about her waist. The white cotton headpiece, her coif, was trampled on the ground, spotted with blood. Agatha gathered Maria up, covering her exposed chest, guiding her to the infirmary. In a weakened state, Maria mumbled that the blood on her coif was her own, And though there were scratches on her forearms from rummaging in the thorn bushes, none were deep enough to produce the thick crimson droplets. Settled into a bed in the infirmary, Maria quickly fell into a deep repose. The last gilded wisps of sunset fell on the graceful lines of Maria's vigorous olive complexion. Her lips carried that rich hue not at all unlike the substance found on her garments. Agatha stood over her thumb and forefinger working through her rosary as she took stock of her sister's bizarre condition. Days went by. Sister Greta had disappeared, vanished like a phantom caught in sunlight. Sisters had deserted the convent before, but Greta wasn't the type. Stranger still, what few possessions she had in her cell were still there. All were undisturbed, except for her Bible, which had several pages torn from it. As the end of August wore on, Agatha kept a keen eye on Maria. She hadn't told the other nuns about the blood she'd found on her clothes, nor that Maria was half-naked when she was discovered. In an environment where choir is the height of activity and entertainment, such rumors would spread faster than ticks on a stray dog. But in the gleam of Maria's smoldering mahogany eyes, Agatha thought she detected a glint of mischief beneath a veil of innocence, wearing perilously thin. Even still, it seemed to be a force perhaps beyond Maria's cognizance, something lurking within her. Indeed, what were the inner workings of Maria's mind? A fever dream of visions. In them she sees coarse black fur, a pair of ebony horns, their ribbed edges nudging against her palm as she pets them. And what is on her hand? A thick, shining fluid that bears no color in the darkness. But she recognizes the smell. She knows it when it flows from her own body. She sees a head, a floating head. The nub of its spine is perched atop a post on a piece of farmland in the dead of night. It is without a body. The eyes watch her with a muted horror, frozen in a half-lidded scream she reaches out to grasp it by the hair. Maria, Maria. Agatha pulled the delirious sister from yet another fainting spell. Only now that word failed to describe it. These episodes were nearing on psychosis. It was night. The torches in the open halls of the convent fluttered from the midsummer gusts, wafting through the windowless apertures in the walls. Agatha grasped one of the torches and freed it from its sconce, lowering it to cast light on Maria's face, wearing that curious look of bewilderment and shame as she always did when she found her. Unlike the other instances, Maria was without a scrap of clothing. Agatha turned her eyes away, the torchlight undulating umber fingers across her body. Maria looked up at her, yearning for an explanation, yet there was a hint of contrition in her eyes, a knowing that she wouldn't admit. Hoisting her up off the floor, Agatha shouldered the bulk of Maria's weight, as she admitted she was too dizzy to stand on her own. The torch purred in that unholy silence. There were small marks on Maria's body. Agatha ran her fingers along them. Soot streaked her legs and feet. Come along then, child. Back to the infirmary, Agatha said. Maria nodded, beginning to weep gently. What is it, child? Agatha asked. I fear I am hearing voices, Maria confessed. Voices so foul and terrible that cannot be quieted. It is just the heat, child. These sleepless nights, they are getting to us all. The abbess reassured her. Laying her down to rest once more, the abbess pushed a rosary into Maria's hand. Retrieving a habit from the sister's cell, she laid it beside the bed. I'll fetch the nurse, Agatha said. But when the abbess arrived at Nurse Bianca's cell, she found only a bed with disheveled covers and the remnants of her crucifix upon the floor, its silver chain in three pieces, missing the pendant. By the time Agatha made it back to the infirmary, her determined steps echoing in the empty halls. Maria was fast asleep, her brows furrowed in some worrisome dream. The following morning, there were no signs of Bianca, and as time would prove, just like with Greta, yet another nun had gone missing from the convent, as though their very bodies had turned to ash, swept out into the darkness surrounding the priory. Agatha alerted the city guards immediately, but the men of the Night's Watch were notoriously unorganized, governed loosely, and had a propensity to shirk their nocturnal duties on the city's dime. As the next handful of days rolled on, no news broke of Bianca nor Greta. The city guards waved off Agatha's persistence, regarding it as little else than the hysteria of a middle-aged abbess, with nothing better to do than extrapolate needlessly. All the while, Maria began to suffer a low fever. She spent most of her nights in the infirmary with increasing dizziness and a loss of appetite, though Agatha and the others urged her to pray, fearing that some dark force had slipped into the convent through her body. Maria assured them it was nothing of the sort, and yet, after devoting most of her life to her faith, inexplicably, Maria was only able to stumble through her prayers. The words felt unwieldy, plain at the edge of her memory. Her reality felt more earthly, less constrained by ethereal notions of purity that so dictated her every waking thought and moment. On account of her condition, She was permitted to be absent from daily rituals, from choir, from the activities that so defined the life of a nun. And in that infirmary bed, those visions that visited her began to return. She sees a hand reaching out, trembling in the dark, a pale wrist extending from soil. It grasps out for Maria, for anything, And is swatted away by a shovel and a curse that could rot summer peonies. The words that slip from her lash out from her throat, guttural and unrepentant. She buries the hand until it stops quarreling, until there is none to be seen at all, and the dirt that was showered over it is padded flat with the rest of the farmland. It is night once more. Shedding her garb, Maria wanders to a clearing at the edge of a nearby forest. A crackling fire from deep within pulls her closer, its embers winking between foliage, a place she has visited before. There she sees a familiar form, a friend standing by on four legs. Its cloven hooves are polished, waiting attentively by the fire. The goat does not beckon her, for she hears its voice in her mind, and stepping nearer still, Her naked body drinks in the warmth of the flames, but she does not shiver, for the summer night's air is forgiving against her skin. For a moment, she entertains a silly thought. What would it be like to fly in it? A voice, buttery and yet silty as salt, slips into her ears. Why do you squander your time? Before she can answer, Maria is flung across centuries She feels the passage of a millennia race through her fingertips, a gust that makes her feel weightless. She glimpses the unmatched bliss and terrors of time's unfettered reckoning. She swims in a sea of blood. As her body suspends in the air, a helpless laugh escapes her lips. You turn your eyes upwards, forever forgetting your brief days here. In that moment, she is neither nun nor woman. The earth in soot, staining her hands, is as sweet and fragrant as a bed of lavender. The air is silk, cradling her as she is lifted higher still, her legs aloft with the skyborne embers. I leave you with this. Once more, Maria was shaken back to herself, not from reverie, but from recollection. Standing over her, Agatha and the other nuns from the convent were outside the cell peering in with horrified faces. Naked, Maria was sitting cross-legged on the floor of her cell. A quill in hand, the dismembered hand of Bianca was laying, discarded on her bed. Rotted and green, Greta's head was upon her desk. Her neck balanced atop her Bible, beside torn sheaves and Bianca's stolen crucifix. A frenzy of flies had descended upon it. A part of Maria wanted to scream in abject terror coming to in that moment, but that part remained quiet. Instead, she looked up at Agatha with weary red eyes, shimmering with a bold arrogance. Black ink stained her face and body. With a tiny grin, she grasped the parchment that she'd been writing on, the message that had been given through her now bold. Its symbols as esoteric and illegible as her expression. She appeared like a child proudly revealing an illustration, but it was far more than nonsense. It was a cipher, a secret, a blasphemous confession concocted of four languages, one so timeless that it would not be translated until three hundred and forty years later. Composed of Greek, Latin, Arabic, and runic alphabets, that letter, now remains in the possession of Ludum Science Center in Italy, an artifact of humanity's quarrel with our base natures, our madness, and our demons. Thank you for joining me for this dark tale. In this part of the episode, we discuss what was true and what, if anything, was fictionalized for the sake of the narrative. But before we continue, allow me to thank the sponsors of this show. You. Mania is entirely independent and listener-funded. So, if you find these stories meaningful or enjoy them, please consider contributing a subscription to patreon.com forward slash Patrons receive exclusive content and lots of goodies from the Grimm family. Now back to the show. It has been quite a while since I fictionalized a story to such an extent. More often than not, I like letting history speak for itself. I just feel it is more powerful that way. But with regards to Sister Maria's story, if I hadn't put in several characters, if I hadn't embellished it with the murders, we would really be left with a curious anecdote that could probably be told in just several minutes without being felt with any real significance. So let's talk first about the artifact. It's true that this artifact was allegedly written by a nun who was possessed. Sister Maria was a real person. It is another thing to actually assert that she was possessed by the devil, or even the fact that the devil himself even exists. However, she was found in her cell, sitting cross-legged, covered in ink, truly driven to madness. And this document, more extraordinary than anything else, really wouldn't be translated. nearly 400 years, it was only in 2017 that it was actually finally deciphered. Of course, we could assume that the devil somehow wormed his way into Sister Maria's body, gave her the linguistic competence to write this cipher, or we could admit that Sister Maria had a firm grasp on these languages as a nun, she had more than enough time to study them, it would make sense that she knew them given her studies. Just as well, considering the immense mental stress and pressure that she was under in such an environment, in a life of devotion, it was thought that perhaps she had schizophrenia or was predisposed to mental illness. And this environment, the pressure, sparked a bout of psychosis, and perhaps she really was listening to voices in her head telling her to write down certain things as to the actual contents within the letter it isn't anything too remarkable or off the beaten path from something that would come from somebody who was supposedly possessed by demons or the devil it rejects the trinity it claims that god does not exist it urges nuns and other religious people to stop praying and wasting their time thinking about the afterlife and it claims that satan is the one true deity in my opinion this is sister maria's personal struggle with her faith, her devotion, and the pain of remaining so pious, so chaste, and so careful with her thoughts and actions. In such an environment, we can only imagine the kind of stress she is going through constantly analyzing her thoughts, safeguarding her words, and being afraid so much as to think sinful things. Of course, the murders did not happen, Sister Maria was not a killer. She was not even a criminal. But she was predisposed to having these manic bouts where she would shout or be incredibly angry at people. She did have fainting spells, and she did exhibit that very strange climatic behavior of writing this incredibly complex cipher that is actually very impressive that wouldn't be translated for centuries. So, of course, that leaves it to the listener to decide was some foul force at play, or perhaps just as sinister as there's some concoction of the human psyche quarreling against itself, vying for power over Sister Maria's hands. I leave it to you. Thank you once again for joining me for the Mania podcast. My name is Harlequin Grimm, and as ever, the theater is open to you.